Well, God is on a mission, and I think one of the biggest things that he has in the crosshairs of, of his view is our need. And I think a lot of times God is uh, so tuned into our need that um, we, we don't even realize it. And the degree that he's aware and the degree that we're unaware of just how much God sees and knows um, is, is a pretty big span. And what I'd like to do this morning is just to help us to close that gap a little bit so that we can see a little bit more uh, about what he sees and, and perhaps we can come a little bit closer in our walk with him as he comes close to us and already has come close to us uh, through that awesome cross. And if, um, if you have your Bibles with you, you can, you can take a look at a couple of passages of Scripture that we'll be speaking about here in just a second from the book of Hebrews. Um, and if not, that's okay because they'll show up on the screen anyway. Um, just wanted to talk a little bit about need because as a, um, as a husband of a teacher, uh, I get to hear a lot of things uh, as my wife comes home and just decompresses for about a half an hour about kids. And as uh, you know, elementary school kids are, if anything, they're interesting. And all of the different stories that go to make up their experiences um, there's just no end. And I told her one time, I said, you need to write this down because nobody's going to believe this stuff whenever it happens. And as um, she's telling me stories about different kids, I'm trying to put together what is their need. And as um, I listen and I hear the names and I think about who they are, I, I feel like in some ways I already know them. And the one thing that I do know about kids is there's always a need behind the need. And I wonder sometimes with the stories that uh, she tells me about their lives, what, how things are going uh, at home, how challenged parents are with these kids, how challenging these kids are to their parents, and what sort of issues are in the background. And I realize that um, in some ways you get kind of a, uh, not a God's, God's eye point of view, but a sense that... Um, the needs that we put on display for him all the time are kind of like what the teachers see every day. And I thought about my own life, uh, as she's mentioned some of the kids, some of them, like myself, have attention deficit disorder. And as a result of that, I can pretty well predict uh, some of the things that she'll be facing based on the things that she tells me. Because I, I know, I, I lived it, I, I've been there. Now, it's, it's not too bad at elementary school level, but as you get a little bit farther along into junior high, the rambunctiousness can get, um, it can get kind of sketchy, if not just interesting. And I thought, as she was telling me about some of these kids, uh, one of them in particular, who I know has ADHD, uh, how his life is going to unfold. And I imagine this scenario happening that uh, maybe would parallel one that um, I'm familiar with, and that is on a, on a very snowy day when there is no school whatsoever and the snow is just piling up on the ground and you're free to do all of this wonderful stuff with snow as a junior hire. You're not quite mature enough to be thinking about girls too much but you're immature enough to begin to think about doing some pretty dumb things with snow and uh, we were no exception. And I can recall whenever uh, on one snowy day we had been building a snow fort and we had been making snowballs and we had been throwing them at each other uh, and then I, then I, I for, for whatever reason, the snowballs started being redirected to the traffic. 
And as cars were getting pelted with snowballs, uh, there was a lot of fun in the eyes of some junior hires that I'm closely familiar with, myself included, uh, where the car would hear a thud, they would put the brakes on, you'd see the brake lights, they'd stop, they'd look around, and then they wouldn't see anything, and then they would just continue to drive on. And the more that happened, the bolder that we got. And this one white Buick came uh, just screaming down the road, faster than it should have been going on a snow-packed road. And it was a big, huge four-door electric 225. And as this guy's barreling down the road, it was just an easy target because the car is about as white as a sanctuary. And we just grabbed all these snowballs and we just started hammering this car with it. What we didn't know was that this car in particular would stop and the driver would get out and when he did, he was eight feet tall. <laughs> and not only that, I recognized who he was because he was the father of a friend of ours who happened to work for a cement company and had the biceps to show it. And when we saw him get out of the car, we were like, oh no. So we, you know, we, we hid and thought, he's not going to see us. Well, he just marched right over to where we were. And he says, you kids, get out of there. And we came out and we're like, yes, sir. And then for about five minutes, there was a diatribe. And there were several words that cannot be repeated in church that were flown at us. There was a whole succession of threats to our person, to our parents, to getting sued, to cars going to body shops and getting inspected for dents. And on and on it went to the point where we were just crushed, whimpering little puppies when he got done with us. Now... Thankfully, no harm was done to junior high kids in that event, but he did storm off in his car, and the next time I saw his son, I said, what's up with your dad? Uh, we just threw a couple of snowballs at his car, and he just really just laid into us. He said, yeah, I heard about that, and uh, he was not too happy about that. He was pretty angry all evening, and I said, well, that seems to be a little overreactive, don't you think, to the fact that uh, we just... We just tossed a few snowballs at the car. No, no harm, no foul. He's like, no, nah, it's, it's worse than you think. And I'm thinking the worst, but really what he was going into at that point was the story behind the story. You see, all that rage that had been simmering underneath the surface had found its target in us. And as he just spewed it out, my friend uh, Robert said, well, here's really what's going on. My oldest brother just found out a few weeks ago that his girlfriend uh, is expecting and they're going to be moving into our house uh, so that they can have a place to stay together. And then he went on to say my dad working in the cement business said that things are pretty slow right now and economically it's been kind of tough for us as a family. And then he went on to say because of all of these things churning in my dad's life my mom and dad are not really getting along very well right at the moment. And I thought, oh wow, that explains the overreaction to just a few snowballs or ten that were pelted at this car. And as I thought about what he did in his reaction to us, I just considered for, for a moment how so often when things are happening in our lives, and they begin to produce a certain gestation that erupts into a type of fruit that is just 
inappropriate or unimaginable for the circumstances that they come in. And as I see that, I realize that that probably is something that we all deal with. Our circumstances are such that our needs are much deeper than we realize. And when Jesus came here to to experience earth with us, he really became God who had reduced his capabilities to function as God to the point where everything that he did in human form, he experienced in human form. Can you really wrap your mind around the fact that our God experienced what you and I experience. I don't know about you, but I, when I think of Jesus, I think of him being all-powerful and all-knowing and certainly capable of facing any challenge that would come his way. But as you read the Bible, you find that there were reasons why he had to reduce himself to the human perspective and way of life and feeling in order to gain credibility with each of us so that the deepest needs at the bottom layer of who we are could be addressed with the greatest amount of credibility. And in the book of Hebrews, uh, there's a couple of things that I wanted to showcase. The other side of Easter, as the church is looking backwards to the cross and the, and the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, and is beginning to get perspective on how it is that these events will make any difference whatsoever in lives to come. As the church reflected on that, the writer of Hebrews said these words, And in chapter 4, verse 15 and following, it says this about Jesus as our high priest. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yes, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and underscore this and find grace to help us in our time of need. And as the writer is describing this quality about the God that we worship, he wants to underscore that it isn't just, yeah, God just did what he had to do to make it happen so that we could be saved from sin and death and Satan's clutches. Brother, God became so aware on the deepest level of human awareness within the confines of human limitations that he gave us, he gave us really a new perspective for living our lives. And The writer of Hebrews expands on it in chapter 5 where he says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned, he learned obedience. From what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest. Not in the normal sense of being a high priest, but even before those guys were priests in the order of Melchizedek himself. Now, if you just take a careful look at what's going on here, one of the things that we see is that Jesus came into our world as a limited, well, as a human being. There's just no getting around it. 
And when he was tested or tempted, Scripture says he did not sin. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean that he didn't go to R-rated movies. It doesn't mean that he didn't speed. It doesn't mean that he didn't abuse alcohol. It's none of that. It just basically means that every point of decision, he did not sin. That is, he hit the mark. Because that, in reality, is what sin is. It's just, it's just missing the mark. But the opposite of sin is something that we have to practice, and that is hitting the mark at every turn, making the right choice under the right set of circumstances in a way that honors within us that God-given quality of being made in His image and likeness. And so sin is, isn't necessarily something that, if I don't do it, I'll escape hell, but rather it's just a reminder that we make bad choices. And as we go into um, this Easter season and we think about the choices that Jesus had to make as a human being, quite frankly, there's a lot that we can discover if we pay attention. And I wonder sometimes if we think about Jesus and we, want, and we, and we look at his life, we know that there was for him even sort of a thing behind the thing. There were reasons why he did what he did because there were, there were layers underneath that that said, this is what is driving me. Now I want to just bring your attention for a second to uh, a couple of things and that is two questions. As you bring your deepest needs into this room, I, I, think, I think that these are very good ways to process the things that you face each day, oftentimes relationally. And the questions are this. First of all, what are you attaching your life to? Now what do I mean by that? In the scripture when Jesus came to earth and he began teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he said something that I think sometimes we gloss over. And, it, and it's simply this. It says that um, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And that's from Matthew chapter 7, verses 19 and 20. And I always tell my kids that. I said, no matter who comes into your world and begins to sell you something or begins to engage you as a friend or a person that you're going to be doing business with, I want to remind you of something Jesus said. Listen to what they have to say, but listen even more to what you see them doing. Because what they do is really a better indicator of where their heart is and what drives them than what they say. I mean, we're good church people. We can say a lot of good Christian stuff. But sometimes people do the math and they look at us and they say, all right, here I, I see what you're saying that relates to church, but I look over here and I'm not really seeing behavior that lines up. And Jesus said, that's what I'm talking about. You'll know them by their fruit. And the thing about fruit is it's, it can be a little bit misleading. Even though we are known by it, what it really is is a signpost to the reality that's happening underneath the fruit. And that points us to another passage of scripture in John chapter 15. In this we read uh, these words that, that, are, that are related to fruit in, in an even deeper manner. And it simply says in verse 5, I am the vine, 
And you are the branches that come out of the vine. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What's Jesus pointing to? He's actually pointing to the root. And in our case, the root problem to our deepest need. Because we could tell Jesus, yeah, Jesus, I, I do have a problem with with alcoholism and I and I and I definitely need your help to get over it. And Jesus would say, I am here to help you with that. But chances are once we get over it, we're like the sober drunk who still has something going on in their life that hasn't quite been been resolved and so the symptom is just taking form in another manner bearing fruit because the root of the problem has never changed and it really boils down to the question when it comes to your deepest need and mine what are we attaching our lives to and Maybe you're thinking, well, I'm, I'm here in church. I'm attaching my life to the Lord. But let me just consider a scenario for a second. Because I, I think inside of all of our heads, when we face a circumstance that is uncomfortable, that is difficult, that probably involves other people and results in conflict, as soon as that happens, and it could be, it could be an associate, it could be a boss, it could be uh, an obnoxious parent. It could be uh, an obnoxious teacher. It could be anybody that we are running cross purposes with. And what this author will do with the little IBM Selectric typewriter in your head is as soon as that scenario starts to move, it starts writing a story describing how it is that you should understand what you are experiencing. And most of the time, because we're fearful or we get wounded easy or things get under our skin, well, typically this author will frame whatever we're facing like we're the victim. And whatever's happening to us is clearly undeserved. And as the story unfolds, it has a lot to do with how wrong everybody else is and really how we're just trying to do the right thing. And this, this author inside of our head is trying to attach the circumstances that we're facing to something other than the Lord. And you know you've done it. When somebody has beat you to a parking place that you were getting ready to park in, in, a, in, in, a, in an environment where parking is scarce and you have a deadline to get to a place you're not thinking about the Lord's Prayer. You're thinking about, I can't believe that guy did that. And then there might even, maybe, I don't know, there might even be other thoughts that come into your head. But chances are, that guy with his IBM typewriter is framing a story why they're jacked up and you're just a good Christian person. And it gets worse because you can just take anything that you face that is a gut-wrenching conflict and it kind of starts with us and then it just sort of emerges out into them. And when Jesus sees that, he says, that 
is a huge need that needs to be addressed. Because that's a violation of relationships. It is a way of functioning that is win-lose. And there are so many things on so many levels that Jesus confronts along those lines in his teachings. That when the religious leaders come along that he's talking about saying, you'll know them by their fruits. They're not interested in getting down to the question behind the question. They like to keep it as surface as they possibly can. And they like to keep God's people in the blind as much as they can. So that this stuff actually will never get addressed or healed. And Jesus just calls them out on it. And he names it. And he recognizes in them of all people, the religious leaders, they have a deep need. And when Jesus sees us building this negative storyline in our heads that drives a wedge between ourselves and others, and maybe in our own mind we're thinking, rightfully so, he's just nodding his head and saying, is that going to produce good fruit? You ever seen an angry Christian who just goes bonkers? It's not exactly their better day, is it? When rage takes the place of the fruit of the Spirit. You ever see a Christian start to triangulate, gossip, undermine? Not the best moment in the kingdom. And we're all very capable of doing that. Because if we're not attached to the vine... We're actually in a very vulnerable position. And we live from fear to fear, vulnerability to vulnerability, in that state of insecurity, because we are disconnected. And I like what Paul said when he prayed about this, as I, as I just conclude the thought. He said... My response is to get down on my knees before the Father, this magnificent Father who parcels out all heaven and earth. And I ask Him to strengthen you by His Spirit. Not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength. That Christ will live in you, and as you open the door and invite Him in, and I ask Him that with both feet planted firmly, On love, you'll be able to take in with all the followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. And Paul gets it because in this letter that he's writing, there's there's actually there's a there's a need behind the need. There's a, a church in turmoil. And he's saying the only way you can come correct is to start with love. But even before then, begin with prayer. Well, you may be attaching yourself to the Lord and it may be a good thing. And if you are, I am certainly glad that you're doing that because that is our lifelong task is to habitually stay rooted and strengthened in Him. I just cut down a tree on my neighbor's property the other day, or right next to my neighbor's property the other day. It was was, um, overhanging a camper that he had and I know he was fearful that branches were going to fall off of it and 
bang up his camper. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chop that tree down so he doesn't have to worry. We're good neighbors and we're, we, we try to be friends uh, uh, usually. And so we chopped it down and then we started digging a little trench for water to go around it. And when we did, I discovered that the biggest root from that tree actually went into his yard towards his house. And I kind of laughed about it. I said, yeah, that's been my tree, but it's been feeding off of you the whole time. And... Um, so we kind of joked about it a little bit, but it was amazing how everything was directed towards pulling all of its nutrients and all of its hydration out of whatever was in his property. And I said, I wonder what you're going to have growing there now because this root was literally that big. It was huge. And I wondered sometimes about how you and I, when we look for that thing to sustain us and we latch on to it, whether we're actually latching on to the right thing. So here's the second question I have. And that is, how are you guarding your heart? How are you guarding your heart? Because the heart is the, what the writer of Proverbs says, is the place that everything else flows from. Above all else, guard your heart, Proverbs 4.23 tells us, for everything you do flows from it. Now, if you remember back to the quote from Hebrews chapter 4, it says that in him is the source of all things. It's like the, it, the, that place that you go where the Ohio River begins. If it wasn't for that place where there was a beginning, there wouldn't be an Ohio River. It is the source from which everything begins to emanate from. And yet our heart is kind of an interesting thing. We don't really think about it as something that we guard. And we let all kinds of stuff into it. We let all kinds of people tell us stuff about our state of being. And we just say, you know what, my heart's wide open. Just tell me everything. And as we do, sometimes it tears us down. And we're not guarding our hearts. Or sometimes we're letting things into our hearts that we should never let in in the first place. And when we do that, it begins to nourish and feed along those lines. People have told me that when you turn 50, whatever habits that you've created in your life, whatever choices that you've made, you really can't unring that bell. So if you've spent 50 years developing some bad habits, chances are they're just going to be you. And you might as well just live with it that this is going to be the way it is all the way from here to the end of your time on earth. And I've taken that pretty seriously because I, I, I've discovered that just like the writer of Galatians says, if you sow a thought, then... If you, if you plant a seed, and it's like sowing a thought. And when you sow a thought, you reap an action. And when you reap an action, you ultimately can no longer get to that place through habit. Where you can even decide to do the right thing anymore. Because you let something in your heart that took root. And now it's just bearing all kinds of wonderful fruit. So a little word to the wise. If you're heading towards 50 just think very carefully about the stuff you're keeping in your heart because you still got a long way to carry that with you if actuary tables are what they are you may very well live to be 90 or longer 
Roots are kind of funny. They look to attach themselves to something. Have you ever been slighted by someone where they've, they, they've really just kind of shut you out or they've offended you or they've done something that has really been a bad turn against yourself and then you start, you hear that typewriter going, writing the story. Or have you ever been in a meeting and the forces at work in the meeting has just really just pressed in on you and made you feel small and it was almost like a power play? Or have you ever been in a situation where for whatever reason you've been slandered or rumors have come your way and they really have nothing to do with reality but because somebody in your world was angered by you, they decided to use social media or something to vilify your person or your character. And that little typewriter's going, I'm going to get even, I'm going to get them back. And all that is doing is saying, I'm going to open my heart up to some real garbage because I've had some real garbage dumped on me. And it's time for a reckoning. And all of that cancerous stuff that our flesh says, you're the victim and you're vindicated and you have a right and you should retaliate. All that does for people that are looking at your fruit, all that does is tells everyone, wow, I guess their Christianity doesn't run so deep after all. I guess when push comes to shove, I guess when they're tested or tempted in every way, they miss the mark. Instead of making the right choice 10 times out of 10. Because honestly, there's nothing worse than believers who say that Jesus is their Lord and Savior and they embrace his love and they know that he's their great high priest to begin to open their hearts in an unguarded way and allow this all of this toxic mix to take root and bear fruit. And then people say, I believe in Jesus, I believe in God, but I don't believe in church. And Jesus says, we have to get to the root of the matter. And maybe you've been spending too much time being too busy with no margin of time whatsoever to hit the pause button and say, okay, I got to look at my life. I got to look at the thoughts that are going through my head. And I have to ask myself, are these the thoughts that Jesus would have? And if they are not, then I need to do something about it. Which leads me to the conclusion of this message. And it is simply this. How do I respond in a way that addresses that need as Jesus comes alongside and helps me through it? Because here's a little FYI. The problems that you and I have in life... God is not going to zap you and take, take them away from you. God doesn't work that way. What he's going to do is he's going to allow you to work through them no matter how long it takes because he's in the business of rooting things out. And sometimes it takes quite a few attempts in order for us to see things clearly. So here's what we do so that we can bear the best kind of fruit. The first thing is we just have to create the space. You guys are all in church today because you're creating some space. And you're saying, I want to hear something from the Lord. I want to find a deeper connection 
with the Lord and, and perhaps with other believers. I want to look at my own life this past week and try to get some perspective on things to make sense because that typewriter in my head has just been burning up the keys and honestly the chaos that is created in my soul is just too much. And so we take some time and create some space. And after that, we just name the root because chances are if you're going to go all flamethrower on a couple of snowball throwing junior high kids, chances are there's a little bit more to the story. And maybe the stuff that is putting you into so much turmoil right now has a little bit of element of yourself. And maybe God's saying, yeah, there's no question that other people are not making the right choices in this equation. But neither are you. And I'll tell you, that's hard when God says, look carefully at yourself. And it gets a little bit harder because what we have to do then is oftentimes, because we have this need, and it could be our insecurity because we're not well-rooted, it could be our fear because we're not very trusting. And we play out our active response. Well, we need to play it back. Have you ever done that? Saying, when I talk to that person, I'm going to tell them this. Or I'm going to lay it all out to that group of people. Or I'm going to make sure that the right just thing happens. And as we're watching this play out, if we have any awareness of God's Holy Spirit in our lives, we're going to be saying to ourselves, oh, that's not right. Playing it back is not an easy thing to do, but it's a necessary thing to do. But here's the last thing as we close. None of this really will work unless you consider that which you're attached to and you detach so that it no longer is feeding your soul. But then, because we can't just live detached lives, we really have to evaluate what are we going to attach ourselves to. Most of us are in this room because we know who that is. We know that if we abide in Jesus, we can do things. And we know if we don't abide in Him, we just can't. And God is saying, I've given you a story to take part in, to attach to. The writer of Hebrews just takes the whole summation of the, the meaning behind that story and he spells it out in the first four chapters so that he can place Jesus within the framework of that understanding to show us what he's been up to for a very long time. And you know, God is a mystery, but he is a mystery in the sense that he, it is, it, it's always unending discovery with him. There's always more and more that's richer and richer with him. And the storyline doesn't end with his son, but actually picks up with us. I wonder, how attached are you to the things that matter when it comes to the Lord in your life? Because when you're attached, that's when you start living. 
And when you're kind of attached, that's when you're just kind of living. And when you're not attached at all, it just means that there's a future yard sale and there's going to be an urn in it and it's going to have your name on it and that's it. You play out something like this. Your lies Leonard Moore. No Leonard, no more. The end. I mean, it's, it's, it's that absurd. But God says, I've got a better vision for your life. And it begins by taking Jesus in and starting to live from there. Let's surrender our hearts to him however he leads us to in this moment. And as we do that, he may drudge up some stuff that is the thing behind the thing so that we can face it and name it and then move on.